I see folks who, for the first time, are getting back in touch with care and may have had untreated hypertension, untreated diabetes for years to decades because they've been so afraid of being discriminated against in the healthcare system. I think it's a very, very important topic because it's something that we oftentimes overlook. Welcome to the ninth episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, and never diluted. Join a group of nephrons as we push the boundaries of kidney medicine. Today, we'll be discussing Neph Madness 2023. Neph Madness is a yearly educational game played through the American Journal of Kidney Diseases and sponsored by the National Kidney Foundation. This year, we'll be highlighting 16 teams throughout the field of nephrology. On today's episode of Nephron Segment, we'll be discussing transgender health. We have a big matchup between two really important concepts that the entire field of nephrology needs to know. We have two guests joining us today. First, I'd like to introduce the Nephrons. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. I'm Ellie Manon, an MD-PhD student at the Medical College of Georgia. And we have two guests with us, Sharish Ali and Mitchell Lunn. I'll have both of them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Sarah Shali, and I'm a general nephrologist at Houston, Texas at Baylor College of Medicine. And hi there, my name is Mitchell Lunn. I use he and him pronouns, and I'm an assistant professor of nephrology and of epidemiology and population health at Stanford University. Okay, let's get started. This is Neff Madness. This is the best time of the year, and we have a very important topic and I want to first jump right into it, and let's talk about the teams. We have kidney care for the transgender patient versus gender-affirming care. Let's talk about this matchup. So, you know, transgender health, and especially the health of sexual and gender minority people or LGBTQ plus people, has changed drastically over the past decades, and specifically over the past year as transgender health has become more popular in the media and really garnering more attention. With that, of course, comes specific things that can affect people's kidney function or the care that they get in the hospital and from our nephrology colleagues. And this also relates to changes that can happen in biology and also the way that we as nephrologists and people in the kidney care industry have interacted with lab values or other aspects that may impact the care that we provide to our patients. Uh, so you said a lot there, and I, hopefully we can cover a little bit more in detail some of that. And so I'll start with the last thing I heard you say, which was lab values, lab abnormalities. Can you tell us a little bit about what we should know about, which is covered um, in this region about lab values and the assessment of kidney function? Uh, I think most most folks are probably recently familiar with the removal of the race modifier in the EGFR equations to estimate clearance. Similarly, we have really a lack of evidence surrounding EGFR equations that use creatinines for folks who are transgender and especially for those who are receiving gender-affirming hormone therapies. So we think of gender-affirming hormone therapy as, for example, transgender men receiving testosterone therapy and transgender women may receive estrogen therapy as well well as anti-androgens or testosterone-blocking therapies. And so these, of course, can have notable effects on the muscle mass 
that, that our transgender patients may have. It also can affect some body fat distribution or other aspects that are, remain really unclear. And so you can imagine that using an equation that expects a certain amount of muscle mass, for example, using an equation where the sex is selected as male, may not necessarily be appropriate for a transgender woman who's been on estrogen therapy for a long time and may have actually lost a fair amount of muscle mass compared to her cisgender counterparts who were assigned male sex at birth. And so this leads into other potential ways of measuring the kidney function of transgender people. I think sort of in line with that too, are there any other medications that are involved with gender affirming care that nephrologists in particular need to make sure they're aware of that can affect kidney function? That's a great question. I think the most commonly associated medications other than sex steroid hormones themselves would be the antiandrogens. And so most the most commonly used above and beyond any other in the United States, at least, is spironolactone for its antitestosterone effects. That, of course, has potential implications on kidney function, on blood pressure, on potassium that folks need to be mindful of, especially if they're, you know, have other general medical problems like hypertension and maybe getting other agents, including ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. I think as nephrologists, we get very focused on the, on the medications and the GFR and the hormones. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between gender-affirming care that involves hormone therapy versus individuals that may choose not to pursue hormone therapy? For the transgender patient, we think of transitioning can be in kind of three different categories. The first one is social transitioning. This includes using somebody's name correctly, using the pronouns that they use. At the beginning, I introduced myself as somebody who uses he and him pronouns, but people may use pronouns that are gendered, like he and him or she and her, but they may also use pronouns that are non-gendered, things like they, them, or there are, of course, other pronouns as well. Social transition is one part of things that can include obviously name and pronouns, but also the way people dress and the way they appear or express their gender in society. Medical transition is another type of transitioning. That's the hormones that we were discussing. And then there's also surgical transition, which is having one of many different surgeries or procedures that exist to affirm people's genders. It's important to note that there's no real path for transgender people. They may start with surgery. Some people may only socially transition and never do anything else, not do hormones, not do any other surgeries. The no path is the same for each person. But you can imagine one thing that is oftentimes common is the continued societal stigma and discrimination. And that includes not only from society, but that also includes our medical systems and including academic and non-academic medical centers. People being discriminated against or misgendered, that is being viewed as the gender that they're not, can happen at any step along the way from the valet parker at Stanford Hospital to the welcome desk to the registration receptionist. And so one part of gender affirming care that doesn't involve medications or surgeries or anything is actually just referring to people who, you know, as they are with the correct name and pronoun and respecting them and their journey. You can imagine that folks who have had significant experiences of stigma and discrimination, especially in the medical community, decide to never come back. And so as a nephrologist, I also see patients as a primary care provider in Stanford's LGBTQ plus health clinic. And I see folks who for the first time are be getting back in touch with care after five, 
10, 15, 20 years and may have had untreated hypertension, untreated diabetes for years to decades because they've been so afraid of being discriminated against in the healthcare system due to their identity. Sirish, you were the writer for this region. We're trying to talk about this to the general nephrologist. How would you talk to your colleagues about the importance of this region in this year's NEF Madness? I think it's a very, very important topic because it's something that we oftentimes overlook. I know in my practice, there have been a number of patients that identify with the LGBTQ plus community. And up until I wrote for this region, I didn't realize the discrimination, the violence that this community faces. And we oftentimes just associate the LGBTQ plus community as maybe just as a stigma per se, but we don't necessarily dive into how it really affects them, not just mentally, but physically, and how it really just changes their entire life. And by us having a better understanding of the community and understanding how to better care for them, I think that will really make a difference. Just something as simple as addressing them with the correct pronoun or not just classifying them with the cisgender terms, not just calling any person Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so and asking them, hey, how would you like to be addressed or how do you identify yourself? I think those are very important questions that may seem basic, but up until I wrote this region, I don't think I understood the importance of it. One thing that I often get asked is how many LGBTQ plus people are there in the country or how many transgender people are there in the country. And the fact of the matter is, is that we don't necessarily know this because sexual orientation and gender identity is not collected on the U.S. census. So we don't actually know where LGBT people live and their races and ethnicities and education levels and religions, etc. But we do know from Gallup. So Gallup does daily calls of about a thousand people and asks them their sexual orientation and gender identity, among other things. And the current numbers now are that about 7.1% of the United States population of the adults in this country identify as LGBTQ+. And when we look at the younger folks, the Generation Z folks, so the people who are, say, 18 to 25 currently, we see that those numbers are closer to about 21%, or one in five are identifying as LGBTQ+. And it's actually a little, just over 2% of Generation Zers are identifying as transgender. So it's one in 48 people. It's about 2.1% of the population of Generation Z identifying as transgender. So this is not just San Francisco Bay Area (laughs) issue. And we're obviously seeing that with, with Dr. Ali's experience as well. And so this is really, I think, an important topic that is reflected in every single county in this country and is important everywhere, not just something for the cities or for the cities that have been maybe viewed as more welcoming toward to LGBTQ plus people. What are your thoughts on that 7% being a underestimate and people not reporting for fear of 
anything. Yeah, I think it absolutely is. We consider it a floor and not and not a ceiling. You can imagine it's some random person giving you a phone call being like, hey, Dr. Farouk, do you identify as LGBTQ plus? And depending on your mood that day, you may decide how you want to identify to some random stranger calling you. There has been a few studies on the federal government side. So the National Health Interview Survey has asked about sexual orientation, not necessarily about gender identity. In previous studies, they've do it in a way that a lot of us in the LGBTQ research space think was not the most comprehensive. But regardless, we also view those estimates as as underestimates, because in that case, it's actually a federal government official showing up at your house and asking you questions. And so <laughs> you can imagine that that people may be a bit reluctant to share their true identity. And of course, depending on their area that they live, how supportive or not it is, and really the current administration also really dictates people's responses to these sometimes things that could be used in stigmatizing or discriminating ways. So we do think it's actually an underestimate and we do see, of course, increasing proportions as the decades or as the years pass. And we don't think that there's actually more LGBTQ plus people than there was, say, 20 years ago. In actuality, we think what's happened is just that society has changed where people feel more and more comfortable coming out about their identity, even to a random Gallup employee giving them a phone call. Yeah, I think that's such an important point about, you know, the reporting. If we think about our, ourselves taking histories from patients that are coming to see us, are we creating an environment that is safe to allow someone to share not only information about their gender identity, sexual orientation, but anything in their medical history? I think all of that is so privileged. And we try to teach medical students starting in the first year how to do this. But I think it's such an important skill that unfortunately, I don't think is reinforced as we go along through our training. And we can blame the surveys for not asking the question, but I'm not sure how much better many of us would be having an interview with a patient. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. This takes this takes practice. I do this for a living. <laughs> and I make mistakes every single day for the ways that I interact with LGBTQ plus patients and my in trying to be as comprehensive and culturally competent and welcoming and affirming as possible. And so part of the ways are that making mistakes, practicing and making mistakes are part of the process. And that is what all of us should also do. And it's easy to say, you know what, I'm sorry, I just used the wrong pronoun. I apologize for that and you know move on quickly there's no need to dwell on your mistakes and get overly you know focused on a mistake instead but recognizing that you did make a mistake and apologizing and moving on quickly is an important aspect of all this but it will take some time I think one of the things that I learned after I started researching more about this topic and just in general I tried to implement some of the stuff that has been documented in my practice and I'm surprised to see how people respond. And so just saying something basic like, hey, what do you want to be called? Or how do you want me to address you? They just look at you and it's like they've never been asked that question before and they don't know how to respond. And, you know, sometimes the patients will actually stutter and they'll be like, what do you mean? And so I think it's great that we have this out now and so many of us are trying to create that welcoming space or understand or learn how to create that welcoming space because I think as we continue in our career, we can really make a difference for these people. Yeah, and I think to add on 
that point is figuring out a way to integrate this into your practice with every single patient. So when I'm meeting a patient for the first time, I'll say, hello, my name's Dr. Lun or Mitch or Mitch Lun, or depending on what my mood is of the day. But I'll say, and I use he and him pronouns, which pronouns do you use? And that becomes just in the like integrated part into my introduction with every single patient that I see. And then I'll also sometimes say, the medical record is telling me that your first name is listed as Mitchell, is that the name that we should use for you? Or is there a different name, right? Because, and of course, this applies to folks who are not LGBTQ, who are not transgender, they just don't go by <laughs> their legal first name, they might go by something else, right? So those are benefits for actually for everybody, because they actually sh show that you care about how you're going to communicate with your with your patients, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So Rish, in the write-up, you mentioned the lack of medical education, which I think is a huge problem. And But I do want to say, I think, you know, since I was in medical school, which wasn't that long ago, but long enough ago that there's been a change. I remember when I was in, in medical school, there was really no discussion about this. We didn't talk about how to, as you know, Mitch, as you described, integrating this into your daily practice. But for the last several years, teaching medical students how to take history, they all ask patients these questions in this same way for every single standardized patient that they meet. And it is hopefully just going to be ingrained and just be this way moving forward. I think the older generations, we have some catching up to do and try to change some of the habits that were ingrained early. But I think that is one you know, positive step in the right direction. You're exactly right. We actually did a study back in 2009-ish, somewhere around there, where we looked at the medical education across the country for United States, both MD and DO programs in the United States and Canada. And at that point, so again, late, you know, 2009, 2010 era, there were a third of schools that had zero content related to LGBTQ plus broadly in the last two years of medical school, what were at that point very much the clinical years. The line of preclinical and clinical years is, is blurring now at most medical schools. But at that time, it was pretty distinct that years one and two were the preclinical years and three and four were the clinical years. And there were, so a third of schools had zero content at all, zero <laughs> during those clinical years. And so it was a little bit that was built into the practice of medicine, the standardized patient the OSCE type type things early. Um, and that I think has gradually, of course, changed over the past 13 years, thankfully, which is exactly right, that it's being just integrated as the routine for every single patient. One of the great things about Neff Madness is having fellowship programs fill out the brackets together. And so as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, wow, what a great opportunity to now integrate this into all the fellowship programs across the country with Neff Madness. The research, as we've discussed is still needed. And it's great that that study that you performed in 2009, I'd love to hear from you. What are the big areas that we need to do more research on? Where does the funding need to be in this area? When we look at LGBTQ health broadly, the issue is that we don't even have basic epidemiology on most diseases and conditions. Again, it's because sexual orientation and gender identity are not collected on those big federal health studies like the census. And the reason why that's so important is that all the other national health surveys, so the National Health Interview Survey or NHIS and the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey or NHANES, as well as the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System or BRFIS, B R B 
RFSS. Those three big products from the United States government actually create their epidemiologic sampling frames based on data from the census and from the American Community Survey, which is what the census does in those intervening years since they only show up every 10 years. And so if we don't know where LGBTQ plus people live, we actually can't really make a nationally representative sample of LGBTQ plus people. I'm from Bismarck, North Dakota originally. I live in San Francisco now. I can tell you that the percentages of LGBTQ plus people in each of those locations are not the same, right? But the health of the LGBTQ plus people in North Dakota is just as important as it is in San Francisco. And so the area here is a lack of data. And one great source for data is the electronic health record. And so getting not only every nephrologist and every provider in this country to start asking that information, but then also making sure that there's appropriate places in every electronic medical record to document that will actually give us some of the data that we can start to to have to start looking at the epidemiology of everything, including hypertension, including chronic kidney disease, including end-stage kidney disease, including transplantation, all these things that are oftentimes missing. So I think that's a key component. In 2016, the end of 2016, the NIH actually labeled the sexual and gender minority community as a health disparity population for research. And that, for those of us that have been in the field for a while, we were like, no duh, we know that this has been a health disparity population for a long time. But what it did do was actually allow some dollars, some NIH funding dollars that are typically reserved for the underserved populations to now actually go toward to LGBTQ plus based research. And so that has opened up lots of avenues. And I think one resource for the research fellows who are listening is the All of Us Research Program, which is an NIH initiative to recruit 1 million people from across the country. These folks will have survey data, electronic health record data, whole genome sequencing, as well as some other data types, including, for example, your Fitbit or other wearable data could be there. But this will be 1 million people. All 1 million people are asked their sexual orientation and gender identity and sex assigned at birth. So this will be the largest known data set of LGBTQ plus people in the world that will also have people's EHR data and other components that we can start to look at some of the unique health disparities that may or may not you know, be part of these communities. So looking at what medications they're taking and are the folks are the transgender folks who are taking testosterone, are they actually getting hypertensive also and what hypertensive medications are being used or not? So I think there's lots of interesting, there's lots of areas that are ripe for opportunity here and for research because it's really a data-free zone that now is starting to get a little funding and a little data collection. Well, even our floor number of 7.1% of 1 million, that is that is a lot. Correct. Right. And the numbers right now are around actually between 9 and 9.5% of all of us participants are LGBTQ plus identified. So hopefully we'll oversample a bit. <laughs> we need more gen, uh, gen, whatever the newest one is. As expected right now, it is a slightly older 
group as most of the participants and all of us, as we expect in most clinical research, right? You know, there's not a lot of 20 and 30 year olds that are signing up for clinical research projects. I wanted to come back to gender affirming hormone therapy just for sure. a second. I know there's a section where y'all discussed the risk of AKI and CKD. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I think a, a, also a rather unclear area, but, you know, there is thought to be some lower prevalence of AKI and CKD in transgender people. And I don't necessarily know if this is a result of people being more connected to care and thus they're getting frequent lab measurements. <laughs> they're getting frequent folks even just lying eyeballs on them and on their medication list and making sure that everything is okay and staying staying healthier. You know, when when we start folks on gender affirming hormones, for example, I typically see them one month in and then every three months. And it can be every three months for quite a while. So that's more frequently than most of us would actually see a provider in a usual way. So I think that that's one aspect. I think the other aspect, of course, is that there is some, with testosterone, we get concerned about some of these very, very rare side effects that could cause an AKI, but things like polycythemia, right, having too many red blood cells as a result of the hormone therapy and how that can result in obviously horrible things like acute coronary syndrome or a stroke, but also whether or not that results in increased viscosity within the renal vasculature. And then there are the risk of venous thromboembolism in estrogen therapies. That is become, and again, it's a pretty data-free, limited data area, and was much more common when we were using ethinyl estrogens, like the old birth control estrogens that were very prothrombotic, which we don't use anymore. And so I think there's a lot of changes that have happened that have made this be um, a lot safer. But all of that of course, is I think as actually secondary to the mental health and social health effects that result from gender affirming therapy, which is that folks, and this is shown both in the data and anecdotally from experience, is that sometimes folks' mental health improves within one week or two weeks of starting hormones, which is not the hormone likely that is causing that. It's the fact that they're doing something that's gender affirming and they're being supported in their care. All of a sudden, folks who had very, very high depression scores, say on the PHQ-9, they were in the 24, 25, 26 range, like near the max that you can get, are all of a sudden coming down into the tens or down into the single digits, right? You know, by doing something that's affirming. All of a sudden, that they're now getting the support that they need from the medical system that they're now ready to go see to get that referral to the endocrinologist for their A1C of 11. They're now ready to get their cancer screening done. They're ready to get their mammogram, their pap smear, their PSA, whatever, their colonoscopy, where all those things were kind of left before. And so folks were more prone to have uncontrolled chronic illnesses, which of course brings them closer to getting CKD and puts them at, of course, risk for AKI as well. Thanks for sharing that. That was great. And I have one, I have a lot of questions for the two of you, but I will cap it at one more. As a transplant nephrologist, I am seeing mostly patients with kidney transplants. When we're seeing a patient with a kidney transplant who is a transgender patient, what are some things we should be doing to provide the highest quality of care that is gender affirming? 
Sure. I mean, I think the best things are to, you know, use their name that they use and use their pronouns and respect their gender identity and how they express themselves. I think it's important to ask about what medications they may still be taking for for gender affirming purposes, in addition to all their other medications, which I'm sure you're going to want to know about and make sure that they're, I think, of course, making sure that they have a strong social support network. That's obviously a key part of oftentimes the selection committee meeting and making sure that they have enough support for their, to support them through their transplant. And I think that continues throughout their entire transplant, you know, span. And then it is, I think, relevant to talk to folks about their gender affirming surgery plans and that you as a transplant nephrologist are somebody who will want to know what other surgeries they may have planned. You can imagine if people are having genital surgery, sometimes called bottom surgery, that sometimes that involves, you know, pelvic vessels and other things. And you can guarantee that their gender affirming surgeon also wants to know (laughs) what side that kidney is on, what it's connected to, how it's doing, how they need to stay away from it or not stay away from it. And, you know, and those sorts of things. I think it also really impacts for some people, the types of procedures that they may have. For example, for vaginoplasty, which is the creation of a, of a neo-vagina for some folks that involves what's called a peritoneal pull through where the vagina is actually lined with peritoneal. For other folks, it may be a penile or scrotal inversion. And for other folks, it can be actually colonic tissue. And so there's a variety of surgical procedures. And depending, you know, let's take your your patient, Samira, that, you know, may have been, what if they were on peritoneal dialysis before their transplant, right? Is the peritoneum the best tissue to use for their vaginoplasty? The answer may be no, right? You know, because depending, it may be rather fibrotic. It may be, depending if they've had peritonitis over and over again, they may have lots of scarring. So I think there's all these things where it's really relevant. And if you're approaching that as, I want to take the best care of you. So it's important for me to know what surgeries you're planning or not planning on so that I can talk with your surgeon about what they need to know or not know um, before you have a gender affirming surgical procedure. And I think that also applies for really any surgical procedure, including top surgery, right? Chest surgery or either even facial surgery. Folks may be, you know, have notable surgical incisions and have some, and for folks who may be on, you know, everolimus or other other drugs that may affect wound healing could have noticeable effects. And so there may need to be a transition to some other immunosuppressant mm-hmm. or anti-rejection medicines before, in the perioperative and post-operative period. Can I add to that just a little bit? And Dr. Lund, correct me if I'm saying something out of place here, but also if someone decides to undergo a surgical procedure, maybe get on gender-affirming hormonal therapy post-transplant, their creatinine may change as a consequence of that. And that may not necessarily rejecting or failing their transplant, but it may just be because of the change in their muscle mass or just because creatinine as a biomarker is just not a good reflector of their true kidney function. And so just keeping that in the back of your mind as you're kind of investigating and figuring out why their EGFR is dropping. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. You know, yeah, somebody may be starting on hormones very shortly after their transplant and a couple of years later, their <laughs> creatinine is up to something where everybody starts panicking on the biopsy route or something, right? And in actuality, they've just bulked up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Which I, you know, I think is, you know, some of the other aspects that are talked about in this region is the use of other 
things other than just a single spot serum creatinine for estimation of kidney function, whether that's a cystatin C, whether that's a 24-hour urine collection, or whether that's even a measured GFR. Like all nephrology conversations, this one ends with, we need something better than serum creatinine. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Still working on inventing that molecule. Um. (laughs) It is time to make our selections. Part of the fun of Neph Madness is picking a winner. It's really hard for people to wrap their mind around this. So let me just tell you a little bit about how it works. We have a blue ribbon panel of judges that are going to pick the winner of these matchups. And we've made this matchup. All of them are worthy of winning. Just want to make sure that's clear. Okay. It's not that we're saying there's a loser, just there's a winner and there's a second winner who happens to lose. (laughs) So I just want to summarize our two teams because you know, I think it is hard to talk about these two things. I think our last conversation sort of interweaved them both. So let's talk about them. The first team is kidney care for the transgender person. And really, the key things to know about this is all these changes that we just talked about with the serum creatinine. It's talking about getting access to care, ensuring that they're in a warm, welcoming environment, and we're affirming what their gender identity is. And then we have on the other side, gender affirming care. And this is what we just finished talking about. And that's not only hormonal therapy, surgical therapy, but also societal affirming behaviors. And it's a spectrum. Not everyone is going to do all. And it's sort of been dependent upon where a person is in their sort of spectrum of their life. But it's important because it impacts their health and their kidney health. And so... We have got to pick a team to win and we want to sort of, what would the blue ribbon panel think? And let's talk first with Sarish, who is your winner and why? I think it's going to be the kidney care for the transgender patient. I think that section, it's so important. And I think that's the basis of care for the transgender patient. So I think that's the clear winner in my eyes. I'm also going to pick kidney care for the transgender patient. I think all of the reasons that you just described, I think at least for where I'm at in my training, it's so important to me to be able to create spaces for individuals to be able to tailor their care to their specific backgrounds, barriers that they may face. And truthfully, speaking of one winner and two winners, I think a strong argument could be made in some rooms of fellows that also making sure we have a good understanding of gender affirming care as part of providing competent kidney care for these individuals is also part of this team that we've selected. Well, Ellie kind of cheated and picked both. And I wish in the Super Bowl, there could also be two winners, but cannot be. So I am going to pick gender affirming care, a pretty somewhat clear, I think, winner for me. I I know there's gender affirming care in really both of these teams, but the reason I'm picking the one that is named that is I think that if we want patients with kidney disease to show up in our clinic so that we can prescribe them these new disease-modifying therapies and to do things that we think are prolonging life and saving their kidney function, we need to get them there. And if we don't start gender affirming care with us, I don't think we are ever going to get them there. And so that's why I'm picking that one as the winner. The second reason is I think as sometimes people in healthcare really think about 
transgender patients and the immediate thought is surgery and hormones. And I think this team in this region highlights that it is way more than that and it is different for every person and you can do none of those things and still be needing and wanting and need gender-affirming care to survive. And I think the data with the improvements in mental health and not at all surprising, but I think is, you know, data, people want to see data. So I think um, that is the winner for me. I'm going to go with gender-affirming care as well. And I think I was on the fence because I, I do see the kinder care for the transgender patient is sort of like really important fundamentals. But I also agree with Samira that it's sort of like, that's really the ultimate sort of place that we need to be. If we can't get there, that means we haven't got to the first part. So I'm going to go with gender affirming care for the winner of the transgender region. I too am going to vote for gender affirming care as the as the winner of this region. I think both what with what you and, and Samira said, I think that this is a stepping stone to De- more details in the in the kidney specific care but before that happens i think that by providing gender affirming care we can actually be providing life-saving care for people to prevent them from committing suicide from having a life that is really detrimented by mental illness and the effects that having a discriminatory society has on folks and so you know it is not being lgbtq plus that causes all of these, you know, mental illnesses, anxiety, depression, or uncontrolled medical problems. Instead, it's societies. And so I view gender-affirming care actually as low-hanging fruit for all of us who are healthcare providers and work in healthcare broadly, not just for the providers, that this is a way that we can start to, to save lives while we start getting more data <laughs> in the rest of gender-affirming care and in kidney health. Fantastic. Please, everyone, go to ajkdblog.org, fill out your brackets. You have the entire month of March to do so, and then swag and prizes, and also bragging rights are at stake. <laughs> but important. here's the thing. <laughs> we cannot have both of you leave without the most important part. We need to know what brings you joy in your life outside of your work? Family. I think that without family, there's nothing. So I really take pride in spending time with them. And yeah. Time outside of work. Well, that would be when I'm sleeping, Matt. But so sleep is one thing. But when I'm actually awake, I think the other thing is I really enjoy traveling and exploring new areas of the world. I tend to do that with family and friends. And so it's a way of making new memories, decompressing from my academic life and thinking about something other than kidney disease and LGBTQ plus people. As we come to the end of the Nephron segment, thank you to both Dr. Suresh Ali and Dr. Mitchell Lund for being on this episode of the Nephron segment. And a big thank you to our listeners. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Nephron segment where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, but never diluted.